The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, welcome back to the Piercing Wizard podcast. My name is Lola Slider and I'm filling in this week for your regular host, Ryan Willette. Ryan is still going to be producing this week's episode, but um, I'm going to stand in as host for this week. Um, I just wanted to uh, make sure that Ryan knows that we're all thinking about him very much at the moment, and uh, we can't wait to have him back hosting another episode of the Piercing Wizard podcast. And if you want to support Ryan or learn from Ryan, you can still do that this week by visiting patreon.com forward slash Ryan PBA. Um, This week, I'm interviewing UK piercer Quentin, who's the owner and operator of Kalima Emporium in Worthing, which is down at the south of England. Um, Quentin has been um, a body piercer in the UK since the mid-90s, and uh, he's he's one of those piercers that a lot of piercers know and um, a lot of piercers really respect and appreciate but he doesn't have a huge presence on social media so he's very kindly agreed to do this interview with me this week to um, just let us all learn a a little bit about his career about his life and his working practices Um, and I think that we have a really lovely conversation Uh, Quentin is a a really really joyful person so um, I really enjoyed uh, recording this interview and I'm really excited to share it with you all so uh, I hope you enjoy this and uh, at the end I'm going to be back and uh, and Ryan's going to be with me for a few minutes and we're going to hear his thoughts on the interview as well. Hi Quentin. Hi Lola. How are you today? Yeah very well thank you. You? Yeah it's really beautiful here today which is not typical for Glasgow so (laughs) I think it puts everyone in a better mood. Yeah it's beautiful down here I've got the sun shining the birds have been singing in the garden so yeah it puts you in a very good mood. Thank you for agreeing to do the podcast. Um, I know that you were a little bit nervous about it at first but I, I do podcasts with Ryan all the time and it still makes me super nervous because every time I'm just like, oh, what did I say? Why do you let me talk every time? So I think everybody gets nervous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm very flattered to have been asked. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure what I can say that for your interest, but um, yeah, no, I just don't usually do things like this. It's a bit strange for me. <laughs> um. I think I can't, I can't remember if I said to you, but I think um, not wanting to to be on a podcast is often a, a great person to have on a podcast. You know, someone who doesn't usually seek those things out. And um, it's definitely something that Ryan and I have talked about a few times over the past years having you on. So it's, it's definitely been something we've wanted to do for a little while. Um, and I thought I could do this one for him this week. So um, before we kind of get into into any kind of conversation just for people that are listening can you introduce yourself and uh, let people know where it is you work and where they can find you if you want to be found right yes um my name is Quentin Ingalls um I'm the owner of Carly Mar Emporium 
in the UK. Now, I know the website, which is www.carlymar.co.uk. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Facebook page is Carlymar underscore Emporium. And I think that is also the same for the Instagram page. Um, and I have a personal page, but I don't really post very much. So it's not very interesting, um, which I'm sure will probably come out in the interview. Um, but yeah, uh, I have Rosie, who works with me, takes all of the wonderful photographs are up there. I have absolutely nothing to do with that. I'm really bad at taking photos and I'm not very good at social media, but that's roughly where you can find us. Awesome. Um, so I think one of the reasons that um, Ryan and I both really wanted you to be on the podcast was because you've been piercing pretty much consistently in the UK for something like 28 years, something like that now. Does that sound about right? It does sound about right. Yeah, I think from when I first started, I think it, I was trying to work it out when you when you came and asked me. I think it was something about 95 around yeah. that time. It's been a long time that you've been working. And I think that um, there's not a there, there's a huge amount of growth in the UK piercing industry just now. Like the past five years have been the entire landscape of UK piercing has been massively transformed. And I feel like it's creating something like a, a bottleneck within the community where everyone's developing so quickly and they're maybe not necessarily um, able to deal with some of the, the stresses that can come with the job and pressures that can come with it. And um, I think it's really valuable sometimes to speak with piercers who have been piercing like a lot longer, like more than 10 years, more than 15 years, you know, almost 30 years you've been piercing. Um, I mean, you must have uh, quite an overview of what it's been like transforming from the mid nineties to 2022 in the UK. It's, it's definitely been a big journey. Yes, I mean, it's it's massively changed from when I first started. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to think back about things, that, you know, how things are so different. I mean, first of all, just trying to get anything. You know, when I first started, I mean, I was living in a bus. So um, <laughs> um, traveling and I was around Brighton um, and I'd had piercings and I traveled in India. And I mean, I came into it from a, probably a more ritualistic side. And that's just my personal experience. And I think probably the same maybe now, but in my day, definitely there were probably different avenues which brought us into the piercing world. Mine, I suppose I'd always had a slight, I think one of my earliest or two earliest memories are, I think I had a very unusual um, primary school teacher at one point who was very religious. And I remember her telling us about early Christians that used to stand on the top of towers and then food would be taken. And they'd lived there for years and people rolling on beds of thorns. And I remember everyone else being quite mortified and horrified. And I was actually like, remember asking when I was like, well, why? You know, there has to be a reason that somebody does this. What do they get out of it? And she couldn't really answer. Um, and then the other one was watching Return of a Man Called Horse, where um, he pulls the hooks from the chest. And I remember sitting very young with my dad and asking my dad, you know, again, why? And my dad was like, oh, it's a ritual that they did. And so I think I remember those two from a very young age. And then going to India, where there were the holy men, like the Hindu Babas, especially the Shivites, do lots and lots of things over there. And I suppose my interest came from that, the idea of going beyond it to go somewhere else in your mind. So 
I suppose that's what brought me into piercing, really. I think quite a few people get into piercing and then through piercing, they find ritual. And for yourself, you did a lot of traveling in India and then you came back to the UK and you opened um, Kalima. And um, so opening up your studio, you were already heavily influenced by ritual behaviors and, and traditions and things. That's obviously been something that's been like a really big impact on your career. Does that still impact your the work that you do just day to day now? Um, it's a bit different now because, and always then, I mean, that's for me and, and that's the way that I view it, but it's not something that I understand everybody else does. And look, I think what I also love doing is that I love that everyone has their own unique reasons for why they do it. So I try to bring that into my business rather than I have those elements for me. Um, I do personally think it is very shamanic still. I think the whole interaction of people trusting you to basically hurt them puts them in a very vulnerable position. And I think we have to sometimes be aware that that is part of it. Um, and so being very aware of that and being, I think, very trying to be compassionate to my clients. I mean, I always explain to them that it, you know, they should be scared and nervous it's an instinctive part of them. I'm terrible at getting piercings now. Like the bit before, I get so scared. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to hurt. Why am I doing this again? And so I totally empathise with them. And I just still, so that comes through. I try to give people that sort of thing that I totally, you know, to give them an experience. But I also don't wish to force my views upon them. You know, I understand for a lot of people, you know, they just want a nice piercing in their ear. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, I think like quite a common thread for me recently has been um, reconciling the want to create like a kind of ritualistic experience, but as somebody that's completely non-religious and non-spiritual, which can be challenging because I think sometimes you can feel like a bit of a fraud, you know, like taking part in any kind of ritual as someone that's not spiritual. Um, so finding ways to do that has been kind of um, an interesting thread that I've been kind of following the past year or so so sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming when I'm talking to a piercer who seems to have like all of this like I don't know what the word is like spiritual gravitas and all of this knowledge and all of this like power to create such a, a, a warm and, and like like nurturing environment in their work and I'm just like hi I'm not super religious or spiritual but come and get pierced by me and it'll be you know a nice experience so um, I think like the I don't know, like that. I, I want to say height. I'm not sure what the best description is. Like that, there's like a height and a tallness to like the the wall that you create. That I think is very very impressive. Um, you know, I came and had my um, my lip scalpeled by you like six or seven years ago now, and I just remember it being such a good experience. It was just such a good experience that it was like, you know, it it definitely opened my eyes to a side of piercing that at that point I'd been quite detached from. Um, so I think trying to find ways for me to create a similar experience for at least some of my clients, some of the time when it's appropriate, but being a non-religious person is something that I've kind of tried to get, but I think that you do a really good job with it in your shop. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it was a good experience. I mean, I don't think you have to necessarily, I think just having compassion, I don't think it has to be religion. I think if you care, and genuinely care for people you create that environment um and uh, i can tell from you do anyway you probably don't realize that you do it but i'm sure 
by the way that you speak, you have that passion and that natural empathy which comes through. Um, and I think if you work in a slightly quieter, smaller place, you can achieve that. I think I don't want to be super busy now. You know, I like the idea of almost having a small family run intimate thing where you earn enough money, which is wonderful. But you still have time to spend with your clients if you wish to, if they want to spend time with you and just keeping things on, I suppose, a more normal level because you're not you're less stressed. I think just creates maybe for me a more workable environment, especially long term. You know, I I did my six days a week when I was younger and it was almost like everyone said, oh, yeah, you've got to live and breathe piercing, which is, yeah. And I totally get that. But there is also a point where you can burn out if you're not careful, which isn't good for you or for definitely not for your clients. And I still love going to work. Um, so you're in the location of your studio. You're still in Worthing, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yes. But speaking about, you know, like being in like a quiet environment, you're right in this little seaside town, just I think a stone's throw away from the beach. Um, yep. I remember when I went down there, it was like, am I in the right place? You know, like you're looking for the studio and you're in this super quiet residential area, like walking around, looking at houses. And it's just, it was just such, it's just such a lovely location. You know, it's like you just don't expect to like, you know, walk through a door and, and then you're there in the studio. Um, so talking about um, some of the stuff that you do at work, as well as body piercing, you also do other forms of body art as well. You do hand poke tattooing and diathermic tattooing, um, which is kind of for those that aren't familiar with the term, it's like branding. Is that would you say that was accurate? It's a very complex issue in England at the moment. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's the, the situation, I suppose, for people who don't live in England a little bit is the way that our legal system is worked out is that it's very much down to interpretation. Yeah. So how you interpret certain things will depend on how the things go. So in England, it's illegal to push a pram down a pavement because it's illegal to put wheeled vehicles on a pavement. And if you ride a scooter that or a bicycle on a pavement, that's the law you're being charged with. But obviously, if you're pushing a baby down the pavement, you're, that law then is not implemented, although it is a valid law. So when we started doing body mods, many many years ago um I, a friend of mine and must well he went to the home office he wrote to them and they said it's nothing to do with us it wasn't long after a case in england called the spanner case where people were arrested and charged and they got released and there was a bit of a, a time where people weren't sure what we could do or what we couldn't do and so they said go to the police and so we actually went to brighton police and brighton police told us that what we did in our studios with client consent was obviously completely fine and, and that it was nothing to do with them. And then 20 years later, they decide that client consent no longer protects you. And actually it was all. So no one really knows at the moment where or what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Um, so I don't know, you know, I, I feel that it's a form of tattooing in that Branding's definition, you use heat. There's no heat involved. There's no cutting involved. Um, so, yeah, I feel that um, I still offer it. I feel that it's well within any forms of legal thing. Um, 
you know, the Mac case dealt with very different issues. Um, and I think that sometimes people, I understand people being nervous, we all are, but I think we do also have to keep a sort of a clear head and not get too carried away with implementing what we think, oh, this could stretch to this or stretch to that. So I think sometimes, you know, it's that old expression, keep calm and don't panic sort of thing. Just think about things a little bit logically and obviously only do what you feel comfortable with. You know, obviously that's the major thing. You know. Yeah, I think what you're saying is is hugely relevant, like like even dating back from the, the Spanner case and then to the Mac case and then today. So many piercers are wondering, you know, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to find out? Like there are no clear cut, you know, no. examples that can't be manipulated one way or the other. So the best thing to do is contact your environmental health officer in writing and say, I'm doing this. Is it OK that I'm doing this? Should I stop doing this? And then at least go with what they say, because if they're the person who's responsible for issuing your license or a representative of the people responsible, it's something to go on. Um, I had to do that when offering genital piercings again because of the whole FGM issues and, and that kind of thing. Like I had to reach out and be like, I'm doing this. Is it okay that I'm doing it? Or is it something I I, I should worry about? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I'm not sure I should say I'm a bit, you know, I've, I've spoke to my, my work very closely with my health authority over the, over the years and they were fully aware of what we were doing and no one has come and told me that I can't do it. You know, with the genital, female genital piercing, I continued um, doing it. I felt very strongly that um, I couldn't see that it implemented into piercing because it was a consensual thing. I felt very strongly that yet again, this was men deciding what women could do to their bodies. Um, and I continued to, as a very, felt very strongly as a political way. No, if I will continue doing this. If you wish to charge me with that, then come and charge me with it. These are consenting women who are doing this to enhance their own bodies. And if I can pierce a male genitals, then I don't see the difference. I can't pierce female genitals. So we continued offering that service. Um, I did again feel that the actual law, which had been around, wasn't really relevant to piercing. Um, and so I, I must admit, I continued offering and do offer those piercings, you know, and I feel very strongly that um, it should be, you know, if, uh, if it's not, then by all means, then I'm willing to go and argue that in court. Yeah, I had a, I knew I know a couple of other piercers who basically said the same thing. And they again were piercers who'd been working for a long time and they were like, This is the hill that I'm prepared to die on, you know, professionally. Yeah. Um at that point I stopped offering them uh flat out for people of all sexes. Um mm. because I was pretty determined like well if I can't do it for one type of person right. I can't do it for a different type of person that's so discriminatory so yes I was offering them for a while and now I offer them again mm. um, but it was definitely a kind of difficult period to go through professionally because you do worry about stuff like that and nobody could have predicted what happened um, a few years back um, with the the Mac McCarthy case and right. um, so it's I think cast a little bit of a shadow of uncertainty over the subject that's hopefully lifting now but you just I think never... so um, you never know I mean it is always going to be there um and I do think that obviously everyone just has to decide what that I think the only thing I'd say is you know and I, I've had it a little bit where I've seen people say statements and 
it's more when I see people saying things like body mods are illegal and that's people in the business. And my argument is going, look, you can say that you believe that it is illegal. But when you start doing that, what happens is you start to create this self-fulfilling prophecy that actually limits what you can do. And I think we have to be very careful in going this because we start to almost make things up that aren't there. I mean, I remember that years ago, everyone said suspension was illegal. And then I can't remember who it was. Someone did a suspension at the first tattoo convention. Then suddenly every tattoo convention had a suspension, you know, so it can work both ways. So I think we have to be, you know, a little bit careful when people make sweeping statements about things being illegal because no one actually knows what body mods are. Mm -hmm. uh, what one person calls body mods, someone else doesn't. And so, yeah, you know, maybe it's best it's left quiet for a few years. And then I'm sure what will happen is another generation of people will come through, like of my generation, who then go, well, we don't think that this is wrong and we'll slowly start to possibly do things again. Let's see, you know, who knows? Um, well, um, going back to kind of the earlier times in your career, um, I noticed that you posted some lovely pictures the other day of a, a suspension that you took part in in Guatemala um, in 1999, yes. is that right? Yeah, um, 1999, yeah. And so um, I've seen you, you post um, you know, pictures and things from different time periods from different countries. And I was wondering when you go traveling, um, I mean, I would imagine that you take your own things with you. Are there people that you link up with on your travels? Is there like a, a community or a culture of suspension in the places that you visit? Or um, are you bringing everything that you need with you and traveling with companions and then setting up your suspension that way? Or, or are there people that are there that you're meeting up with to do it? Um, it varies. I mean, the pictures of that one was in 1999. No, but with that one in Guatemala was actually the birthing ritual. Um, Amy was about seven and a half months pregnant there, I think, um, my partner. Um, so we literally, we didn't have the internet then. So <laughs> we didn't know anything. We didn't, I had um, modern primitives and I just got a copy of a George Catlin book which had a few pictures in and then another one called Oki Par. So we were trying to work out with that particular ritual how deep to go. And that's the, the one I did there is the one where you rip the hooks out from the chest rather than, than hanging. Um, we worked totally blind. We had to take everything with us. So we made the hooks in England. Uh, we took some needles out. Uh, we didn't know where we were going to do it. We just knew that it was going to be winter solstice. Uh, we ended up in San Pedro in Guatemala uh, a few days before we walked up the mountain path to try and find somewhere that was fairly suitable. We knew we had to be a little bit careful because at that point, there's quite a lot of strict Christianity in Guatemala. And sometimes doing sort of rituals is seen as a little bit maybe possibly devil work. I mean, <laughs> you had to be, so we had to find something that was a little bit secluded. Um, we found somewhere the day before. Um, I fasted for, I think, three days before we did the ritual. Uh, we got up at, I think, six o'clock in the morning in the cloud. It was really misty. We walked the hour and a half or two hours up the mountain, did the ritual, uh, which was 
pretty amazing. Um, starting to choke up now. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's just um, it's been a bit like it all week because of um, looking back and stuff, and it brings up a lot of memories and stuff, which is good. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I, I had no idea that the suspension was the the birthing ritual. Would I, would I be right in assuming that's for your daughter, Indy? Yes, yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I wanted. To, we both wanted to do something. I felt I really wanted to be part, and Amy was going to go through giving birth, and so I really wanted to do something to almost be part of it. And actually, what got me through ripping those hooks out was thinking, oh, "This is nothing like giving birth." And then she said that what got her through giving birth was thinking at points, "This is nothing like ripping hooks out of your chest." So, yeah, kind of mutual pain, kind of exchange. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, I mean, just because we didn't know what we was, but there was no, we just knew we wanted to do it. We had to just work everything out. So that was completely, um, I suppose, just us on our own. Um, when I went to Nepal and did the suspensions in the pool at the tattoo convention, that was the first time it had been done in that context. And which I found really lovely in that I got, totally influenced by the Indian holy men, Nepalese holy men doing all of this. But that tradition to a degree has been lost. And then I was going back and doing the first suspensions. And then I suspended a Nepalese guy who also now does suspensions in Nepal. So it was almost going from them back. And it was really, yeah, really lovely to be honoured to be able to do some of the first suspensions in Nepal. Um, so, I mean, just to put it into context for people that where it maybe doesn't sink in, even in this day and age, something like suspension, it's rare, obscure, underground. You know, there are crews and things that you can seek out and people can help you fulfill your desire of um, going through a suspension and that kind of thing. Um, you know, those things do exist and they can be found if you're looking for them hard enough. But mm. in 1999, um, in Guatemala, no Internet like no local connections, no resources. You're climbing up a mountain and you're thinking, I don't quite know why, but we're doing this and I'm going to get these hooks and we're going to rip them out. And I think there's like just, I think it's amazing how much personal motivation goes into that, thinking like we've not, you know, this isn't something that we've really seen or that we really know a lot about, but we're just going to go and figure it out, which I think is just really cool. Yeah, I suppose I had that thing from that experience from when I was younger of seeing it, it just stayed with me. I just had a deep, need that I had to do it yeah um and we sort of worked we knew we'd work it out I mean that was perhaps that was the exciting part of those times is that everything was a little bit like that <laughs> you know <laughs> because you know when I got into piercing I had modern primitives and my own piercings and I had to work everything out from there really you know yeah. I mean I still in those days people pierced with a brawn cannula I'd never I'd always gone into my mind to sort of when I'd had piercings done and so I'd never even seen what the needle looked like and I remember buying my first needle at Wildcat and they said, what's it look like and they, they had one there to show me well this is what you do and look there's a cannula on it and I was like oh okay you know I'd never even seen them because I'd, yeah <laughs> so I went back to my bus and yeah I practiced on myself and um yeah on friends and yeah it was a lot more exploratory kind of know what you mean a little bit in the sense that obviously when I was the teenager getting Pearson's like we had things like the internet and all that you know obviously like I was born in 1990 so I'm getting my first 
piercings in a studio done in like 2005, 2006. And um, while, we, while we had the internet and everything, it wasn't like it is now where it's like flooded with more information than you could ever possibly need. So when a friend would go and get a piercing, obviously there was, you know, you couldn't film it and you wouldn't film it. And I don't think you didn't have smartphones and stuff at that point. at least. And so when a friend went and got a piercing, when they, they would be like, look at everything that you can look at. See, try and tell me everything that you're seeing them doing. You know, like whenever somebody went and got something done, it would be like, well, they took out this thing that looked a bit like um, scissors but different you know they would try and describe like the clamp and they'd be like oh there's this tube and you're like how does the tube get in oh I don't know but I looked down and there was a tube (laughs) and they're like describing fragments of what's going on because you're so desperate to know what it is that's happening um but you can't really see a whole lot that's going on so I think um is it's fun how you kind of pick up little bits of information here and there or at least you did before it was as accessible as it is now yeah yeah I mean it was I suppose it was just I mean it's interesting yeah pre-internet has probably been the biggest thing you know because yeah you didn't you I suppose you just work things out a little bit more you know it was um has its pros and has its cons you know it's what what it was you know and it's great you know I I'm I enjoyed my journey from there coming through and I'm very grateful to have been born at the time that I was that enabled me to do that you know but that's probably for everyone you know we all enjoy our our section of it you know because that's when we came through with it, you know, and we all have that excitement when you start in the business and that buzz and yeah, it's great. So going back to the time you spent in Nepal, you've been to Nepal, I'd imagine quite a few times. Yeah, the first time was in 88, but then I went um, for six, to the convention for six years um, from the first one until a couple of years ago. Um, So yeah, I did those every year. And I remember um, you were there when they had that really devastating earthquake. Um, yes. Was that 2015 or 2016? 2015, I think it was, yeah. So you were there when that horrendous earthquake happened. And um, I read um, you you were there and you were part of a, a charity that you were involved with called um, Tattooists and Toilets. And it was basically tattooers working together to try and bring toilets to these people because they didn't even have anywhere to go to the toilet, which is just such a regular thing to mm. think about in terms of the necessities people need. And I read uh, the article that you shared um, from the Himalaya Times and there was a quote from you in it. And it said that after the earthquake, I'm paraphrasing probably a little bit but it said after the earthquake you didn't want to leave straight away because you felt like you wanted to give something back to Nepal after Nepal had given so much to you Um, and I just thought that that was really really lovely and it goes back to what you were saying about you did your suspension in Nepal and then you suspended um, a man from Nepal who now suspends people there as well and I just think that it's beautiful that you have like that like symbiotic relationship with the place that means so much to you. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's India's, yeah, Asia falls. I mean, when I first landed, I, I just felt I'd come home. I feel more at home in many respects in Asia than I do in England. And I always have done. And I guess, yeah, it was just the case with the earthquake. It was like, it's, again, it's just, you needed to help people. So we just did what we could do, really. It was a case of, yeah, we knew people's, infrastructure had been massively in the villages because they were living in old houses had been massively broken down so yeah no it was yeah Asia has given me everything um so it's just nice to be able to help sometimes to give something back 
And do you feel like um, your worldliness and the way that you've visited lots of other places and things, how do you feel like that's influenced your professional career as a piercer? I mean, do you think that that's been beneficial to you in the way that you work, in the way that you practice? Or is that just kind of a different part of your life or is it all integrated? I think I hope I feel it's all integrated. I think it's given me everything. It's um, I suppose it's enabled me. To, you see so many different things and realize that people live in different ways. But you also realize at the end of the day, we're all governed by the same thing. You know, we all get up, we have a shit, we eat something. You know, we want to be warm, we want to be liked, we want to have comfort. And yes, we can do it in different ways, but we are also all the same. And I just sometimes think traveling opened my eyes to just to see people for people, give people a chance, regardless of what. I mean, that's what I love about our profession. You know, you can pierce everyone from judges to junkies. You know, you get such a broad spectrum when we all inhabit this world and we all see it very differently. And sometimes, you know, I like the fact that I'll get people in who are very, very different to me. And sometimes those people will become very, very close friends. And it's really nice that you still keep yourself open enough to see, give people a chance. You know, same way as we like to be given a chance because we look different. It works. You know, I just like that that openness that you can get with our business. And I think traveling gave that a lot to me, seeing different ways of living. There isn't one right or wrong way. It's just seeing things for what they are and embracing it and enjoying it. Well, I haven't been able to do um, the amount of traveling that you have. Hopefully I'll get to do a little bit more. But something that I've spoke to Ryan about a couple of times is obviously he does like a lot of piercing education stuff and um, does a lot of traveling and, and demonstrations and teaches classes and stuff. And I've said to him, one of the reasons that I think that he's a really good instructor is that he does travel quite a lot and he goes to different countries and sees different piercers who work lots of different ways. And I think that helps him not so much in um as much of a spiritual sense but in a professional sense learn about people working in all different types of ways so when you see something different your brain doesn't go oh that's wrong your brain goes oh that's cool like how does how does that work like what kind of results do you get doing that which I think is one of the reasons that he's a really great instructor because one of the I think the biggest bees in my bonnet that I get in the piercing industry is definitely like it's this way or it's wrong like it just it's it's always just been like a total thing that like irks me and, and twists me up a little bit so I think that like it's great when piercers can travel generally not just professionally but any opportunity they get to see things done a different way um I just think that that's really cool it helps you like reinvigorate everything that you do at work and, and look at things a bit differently which is awesome yeah, I think that's one of the issues of all of us is not to become too stayed in a way of doing things. Everything changes, everything moves, you know, nothing should stay the same, the same as the world now is completely different to how it was in 1995. And so everything, yeah, has to keep moving. And sometimes it's, especially as you get older, is not trying to get too stayed in your ways and becoming a little bit blinkered about the new ways and not becoming a grumpy old man which I know I have a tendency <laughs> that's what's so funny to me is you characterize yourself as a grumpy old man but I don't think that you're I was gonna say I don't think you're grumpy that's so shady isn't it no you're not a, you're not a grumpy old man um I, I think that like a, um, a lot of people like the people that know you at least that I've met have, have always felt that you're like a really warm really happy friendly person 
Um, I think maybe the, the term grumpy old man just comes from being somebody that just kind of says whatever it is that they're thinking a lot of the time, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can, can probably can be a bad thing, depending on the circumstances. But no, I, I don't see you as a grumpy old man. And um, I think that in the in the UK, the piercing community has a bit of a habit of looking to the West, looking to America for all the piercing history and like all of the piercing, you know, modern piercing lore, if you like, um, that stems from Gauntlet and all of that stuff that's really, really great, whilst totally overlooking all of the stuff that happens here, you know, like and all of the piercers working here that have been working for like, you know, 20 years, 30 years. So um, I, I think that it's important for people to know who you are and that you're still working and, you know, a little bit about your practices, because I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, that it's because America was always so far ahead that we all, you know, looked through it. I think being such a, a vast country uh, maybe enabled the, the business moved a bit quicker. I, I do think that especially also in Europe, there's so many amazing artists in Europe that I think also perhaps are not viewed or looked at. Um, I suppose maybe we all know our own generation. I mean, I've had it where I've spoken to a couple of people and I've mentioned older names and, and they're like, who? And I'm like, well, probably one of the people that helped start modern day scarification or started doing this. But then I'm as bad because I don't know lots of people, younger people now, because I don't really go on social media um, because, I, yeah, it's just, just I'm the wrong generation <laughs> for it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's I think it's good to know the history of where we come from. You know, I think the same as I tried to look into the history of the, the original piercers before me and, you know, and looking how things have changed. It's good to know the history of where you come from. And I don't think it's a bad thing. And <clears throat> and also, <clears throat> of course, things change, you know, and techniques change. But sometimes there's certain things that could still be relevant and still valid. And so I think it's just looking at things as relative to the time, but also some of those things probably still are and if you know a bit about the history I just think it, it it keeps the business going and I think it's you know it's a valid part of it you know it shouldn't define it but I think it's good that people do know where we came where we come from you know I think that's important and so when you started out piercing did you have contemporaries around that time and piercers that you looked to for help and advice or, or were you kind of alone in your area um I I suppose I did. My person for me was was a gentleman called Warren, Warren Dean at Perforations, who sadly is no longer with us. Um, Warren was the person who did my first piercings. Um, and I had a, and he did an ampling for me. And we, he was, the, I suppose he was the first guy who really bridged the sort of ritualistic side for me and modern day British piercing. And I sort of was, you know, I come back from India, barefoot, living in a truck. At that time, not the sort of person that would have a piercing. And a couple of my friends had piercings. And I was sort of, first of all, what on earth do I want to have that done for? And then, I don't know, I just woke up one day and I was like, I want to get a Prince Albert. And so, um, and through that, I met Warren. And chatting to him when I had my Prince Albert, I was like, look, I'm not doing this just for the, the pain thing. Because it was, had very much the sort of pain S&M connotation to it at those days. Now, I come back from India. That was the last thing on my mind. 
And I was like, I'm really interested in the ritualistic. And then he was like, oh, great. I really love this side. And so he sort of broached the, the gap for me. And then we he did my ampelang and he was like, look, we're going to do it as ritualistically as we can. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm just going to have this. We had a North American Indian chanting going and we did the marking. And I remember at one point thinking, I can't do this. And no, this is, this is going to be too much. And the clamp was on. I was like, oh, no. And then as I released and said, no, just, just give yourself up to the experience. He did the piercing. I totally left my body. And when I came back, I just knew I had to see it from the other side of the needle. It was like, I have to pierce now. Um, and eventually he did have an apprenticeship coming up, which I did apply for, but I didn't get. Um, but he was the person who I always really looked up to. Um, but my own personal view, I mean, it's from, from that time, was that Warren had worked it out to do it. So what right did I have to ask him? So I should work it out for myself. So, yeah, I probably in those days, we tended to work things out for ourselves a little bit. Um, and there wasn't a lot of piercing studios. There was Warren in Brighton. Then about the time I started, uh, another studio started called Penetrations in Brighton. Um, then there was Sarge started. It was in Bournemouth. And then it was Patrick at the London Piercing Clinic pretty much i think and obviously they were home piercers and stuff um as i said when i first started it was in the bus so there was yeah you know so yeah it was a, a smaller world and um so yeah you just tended to work things out a little bit more for yourself and i've always been a little bit more of that ilk i suppose that's why i've always been drawn to the bubble way in india you you follow your own path you, you wander in the himalayas it's not about going into a temple all the time you know shiva's in the mountains you know, she was in the nature. And if you really want to find that connection, just go off on your own and do it. So I suppose that was part of it for me. I definitely feel that um, sometimes it does us a bit good to remember that um, there's a lot of talk on the internet now about the right way to get into piercing, what an apprenticeship should be like, how exactly you should get an apprenticeship. And all of this stuff focuses very heavily on apprenticeships, which is, I'm not at all saying is wrong. And, and I wouldn't <clears> suggest people start, you know, piercing themselves at home and doing things that are dangerous. No. But I can't help overlook the fact that almost all the piercers that I know that have been piercing for more than 20 years, and most of the piercers I know that have been piercing for more than 10 years didn't have like an apprenticeship as you would think of it they figured things out for themselves they experimented they pierced themselves they pierced their friends so I kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable when you're presented with this wall that says doing it that way is wrong but ignore the fact that 90% of piercers did that there ignore that but this is the you know and it's just that funny moment of like are we all just pretending that like all well, of we the do that. that we know don't exist so I think I'm of course I'm not saying you know things have changed and there's more opportunities now so that hopefully people don't have to learn in a way that's dangerous yeah. but I also don't want us to like over overlook or like pretend that that all didn't happen and like that's how all of that knowledge was acquired was through like physical trial and yeah. error that's how all that knowledge was accumulated you know so we can get it in a way that's very safe and very sanitized now but it was gained through like physical pain and, and accidents and trial and error um you just yeah. have to kind of um, marry those thoughts together you know I find it, I mean, I find it especially hard for telling people that don't do what I did, you know. Um, 
so I, I, I think if, I mean, people often obviously still write and they ask me about how should I get into piercing? I mean, the one thing I'm very adamant about is don't do a course for three days and pay someone loads of money because it's a rip off. You'll get taught absolutely nothing. And I mean, it's one of the reasons why earlier on in my career, there was an opportunity to do courses, especially for body modifications. And I always refused to do it because I always felt that Yes, I could earn shitloads of money. I mean, I could have just worked for two months a year and just sat out in India and done nothing. But I would be sending people out doing stuff, really, who thought they could do something because they had a certificate, whatever that's worth, um, well, actually, which was really dangerous. Um, so I've always been, that's the one thing I've always been really adamant about is don't do a piercing course. This day and age, really, the, the way you should do it is is to get an apprenticeship, of course, because it's things have changed it's more the the hygiene issues or fine mm. if you want to go and buy yourself a sterilite you know a proper autoclave and you're going to run properly then you know i'm not going to say oh no you can't do that you know but i do think people do need to be aware when they go into it i mean even i lived in a bus you know i still went and bought myself what well, was a steam sterilizer but it was made by prestige medical it, you know i did the best that i thought that i could and all my tools would be done three or four times for about an hour ago and scrubbed and you know and then i was working out well i'm not doing that many piercings so the rotation means that there's about so many months between so we were still aware of, of things and i think yeah that's the thing so people do really need to take that aspect on board you know as well but yeah it's it is our heritage we can't deny it you know i'm not going to stand there and you know say oh no i'm that's terrible look someone's done that and i'm thinking oh yeah i was in a bus so yeah <laughs> well um yeah i think that it's it speaks volumes to the importance of, of hygiene and sterilization when you're living in a bus but you still have your own sterilizer like well, yeah. that's how much of a priority that the sterilizer is you know you need it before you need a house <laughs> or something oh like no that. totally I mean and I had to brag to get that that was quite I mean a funny yeah. story because people didn't want to sell because I wasn't registered you know I mean I remember phoning up Braun Medical to try and get needles and they were just like well what do you want them for and I was like I'm a piercer and they were like well, we don't sell to people like you and I'm like well I'm using them anyway but what it was is we won't sell direct we'll sell to a third party because obviously in those days it, people were worried about the liability because it wasn't a profession as such it's not like now where they make specific catalogs for you but I got my prestige medical steriliser by phoning them up and explaining that I had a friend in India who was a doctor who needed to have a steriliser and then they were more than happy to sell me one <laughs> so um but yes I think, that that's called, I think that's called plausible deniability <laughs> yeah and it was one of those things you know I mean it's like shops people didn't want to rent as shops in those days you know you were often I you'd go I want to be a jewelry shop um <laughs> to try and get a lease or you know try not to meet people because yeah they would assume that what you did people were just like <gasps> you know tattooist so you had to be a bit inventive sometimes shall we say yeah um it's interesting but even in Glasgow um I think like there's a historical kind of bias towards tattoo and piercing shops because you have to have a certain usage class for a building for what you're using it for and the most common is retail and it covers mm. such a, a broad array of stuff and it includes hairdressing and nail salons and all different kinds of retail is all included in this category 
tattoo and piercing isn't in that category. It's in a different category that's very, very obscure and very few premises and buildings are listed as that category, which is something that I learned about obviously working here for a long time and then getting a shop. It's actually very hard to find a premises with the right usage class for what it is you're wanting to do with it. And they're very often kind of like hidden up the stairs, hidden out the way, kind of like, you know, it's, it's hard to find somewhere with the right usage class for you. And when you look at other things in that usage class, they don't relate to piercing at all. And you realize, OK, this is where they put the businesses they don't want. Like yeah. they put <laughs> So that to make it just a little bit harder to kind of get a premises, but whatever, it hasn't stopped me. Um, no. So well, that's it's it. just I mean, it's, it's the hurdles we have to go through. <laughs> Um, my brain has gone completely blank. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that you mentioned, obviously, was about your opposition to piercing courses, which I completely vehemently oppose as well for the same reasons. And one of the things that I always bring up with people and customers that ask, you know, oh, should I take a piercing course? Do you think it would be a good idea? Is that, well, if you're thinking about it, someone who does a piercing course with you, they're taking on a dozen, 15, 20, 30 people in, you know, maybe a couple of blocks a year at least. Um, you know, they could go through 100 people a year, all of those people paying £500, £1,000, £1,500, a lot of money. There aren't jobs for those people. You know, like the jobs aren't being created for those people and they won't have the capital or the resources to open their own businesses. So really, I feel more like what you're paying for is like an experience. Like if you want the experience of spending the day with a piercer and maybe piercing a volunteer or piercing a friend, like you might spend, you might pay for an experience making pottery or blowing glass. That's probably closer to what it is. I could pay to go and do pottery for the day with a, with a ceramicist. But at the end of the day, I'll, and I'll have a nice little dish to take away, but I am not a, a pottery maker at the end of the day, you know? So I feel like that's the, the kind of difference between um, what it would be like going on a course and actually getting an apprenticeship with someone to, to learn it as a skill, which could take one to three years. No, I mean, I think this is, I don't think, maybe there are all professions. I mean, I understand because people really want to get into it and it, it's always been, more people obviously would like to get into it than there are jobs um but i always say to someone you wouldn't think you could be trained to be like a mechanic in three days oh i know nothing about vehicles oh i'm going to come in and be able to strip down i don't know an f1 formula engine in three days you'd just be like really i think you're taking the piss um and so i do think it's a similar thing you know just think about it you know what can you learn in three possibly five days that enables you to have learned a whole profession but I think the worrying with them is that people do believe that. And that's yeah. the scary thing about courses, I think. You know, yeah, if, it would be great if they viewed it as in, oh, yeah, I just like to have a go at piercing. So, as you say, like a pottery, like that's my three day course. I did that. It was great. That's ticked off the bucket list. I don't take it any further. Um, but yes, I think they suggested it. <sighs> people take, I've got actually someone has started, I think, near us now doing them. You know, it's not a lot you can do. I just feel sorry for people to do them because I feel yeah, it's like anything. You're taking advantage of people who wish to get into the business, you know. Well, yeah. But that's yeah, a whole different kettle of fish. So we're um, coming up quite close to an hour. And I said uh, I would try and keep it at about an hour. Um, so I was just wondering if there was anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about today. 
Um, I don't know, really. No, I think we've probably covered um, most things, I think. Um, I think that's probably where, about all I can think of, really. I mean, there might be other stuff afterwards. I don't um, know what you're so worried about. You were so worried about, about what was going to happen. I don't know. I just get really nervous about um, if I'm going to upset someone, I suppose, with certain things, you know, because of coming from a different generation. Maybe I think what it is, it's, again, it's, it's the internet and the social media because everything is done via messaging. Everything can appear a little bit more abrupt. And, I mean, you see it on the forums which is why i try not to go on there yeah. is that you say something and then it comes back and and no one i'm sure is meaning to be abrupt but it can start to come across as a little bit abrupt and then you think oh god i only appeared to say something negative and <laughs> i annoyed someone and i'm always acutely aware that i do have a little part of me that is a bit sort of um always just to take the opposing view i like to make people think and question maybe that's what i like to say you know sometimes i like to point out the inconsistencies in certain things and that's throughout life whether it's my own things you know I like to point out if I think something's a bit silly or irrelevant I sort of point it out and sometimes that isn't what everybody wants to hear <laughs> so <laughs> well, I think you're being a little bit generous because I think some people are trying to be abrupt <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I think a lot of people aren't and you're right there's nuance that's lost which is one of the things that I like about doing the podcast with Ryan is that we get to like actually have a conversation and work out thoughts and say something and take it back or say something and change your mind in the space of a conversation which online it's like everything that you say is carved into stone and you can't yeah. possibly say oh actually now that I've absorbed new information I've changed my mind because people will be like oh but at 1357 you said this and you're like right but now I've changed my mind and yeah. it's like that just kind of doesn't exist which I think is really strange because in all other forms of communication you can totally change your mind and be like yeah I was wrong about that I made a mistake you know now I've ingested new facts but for some reason online it, it just doesn't seem to work that way um can, it, it can be very very difficult I think to for for piercers to uh, maybe just you know make friends and like make acquaintances in that environment I think I think because we could I think it's it's not being able to see people isn't it being able to see someone's eyes and facial expressions, as well as hearing the intonation of their voice, you can then tell if someone's being maybe funny or sarcastic or not being horrible. It's just the way that they've said it. And I think once you remove those elements, it becomes a lot harder to understand. I mean, I do the same thing. You know, I put someone put something up a post, the other picture up, I posted one of my posts, the, the pictures I did, and I automatically, because it's the way they said it, I was like, I don't know the person, that's a bit rude. And actually, they weren't being rude, they thought they were being funny. But because I didn't hear them say it, I unfortunately made a jump that, it, oh, they're being funny. And that is one of the issues, I think, with it, which is, you know, it's why it's good when you meet up, because, yes, you see people face to face and then you actually go, all oh, right, yes, and conversations. And you can spread information a lot easier because everyone's less touchy, I think. <laughs> I've had um, I, I've found people to be quite scary and I've had people find me quite scary just for putting full stops on the end of sentences. Yeah. when I type and I'll put, I'll put a full stop at the end of the sentence because that's where the full stop lives at the end of the mm -hmm. sentence and I finished my sentence and people be like oh you know she's it's like she's trying to say something with that full stop and I'm like nope no I wasn't I was just that's just how I learned to type sorry um you know so it's just little things like grammar that make people you have to put lots of smiley faces on everything and lots of exclamation yep. marks to be like I'm happy and smiling <laughs> this is a this no, is definitely. A 
It's yeah. one of those, I mean, it's it's modern day. I understand it. So it was same with text. I mean, I remember when friends of mine who wouldn't speak on the phone only text, and I, I always hated that again because, again, it was it cuts down that interaction to know what people mean. Um, so, and also, I come from a different time. It's all a bit strange. You know, I still, you know, I try to integrate with technology, but I still find it a bit strange, you know. And same with the internet. You know, that's why I don't put a lot up. I'm just a bit of that generation of, like, why would anyone want to know what I'm doing anyway? You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. Do I want people to know what I'm doing as well? <laughs> what is that? Well, um, I think that it's a pretty good point to like round off our conversation. Um, I had a really nice time talking to you and I, I really appreciate you taking an hour out of your Sunday, especially with it being like such a nice day outside to sit inside and, and film an interview for an hour. Oh, that was an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Lola. I really enjoyed it. It's been really nice to see some reminiscing as well and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I think that people like to hear about it. Um, so I think that I think that it's going to be really good. Excellent. I hope so. I hope I haven't bored everyone. <laughs> Not at all. No way. Um, well, uh, thank you very much for for taking the time. And um, do you want to remind everybody that listens to this again just once more where they can find you in case they missed it at the start? Yeah, my name is Quentin. You can find us on Facebook at Carlymar underscore Emporium, uh, same for Instagram, or our website is carlymar.co.uk. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So now I'm going to try and get Ryan because I think he needs to end the recording because he's the host. This is where you find out I'm really bad at technology. I don't know what I'm doing either. Oh, that's same as Brooks, honestly. I'm terrible. And things go weird with me as well. Oh, he's there. He's there. <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. I've been listening the whole time. Well, I didn't know you might have gone to the bathroom or something. I did. I you know, I did during, but I am here now. That was a great that was a great talk. I think it's a, a really good talk for, for so people cool. just to kind of see multiple perspectives, just like what you were talking about, you know, like the the more types of people you know, the the better thinker you are, and the happier you can be. I think so. I think it just you just seeing things from a different perspective sometimes. Um, it's just yeah, it's interesting. Maybe hopefully that they find it a little bit interesting. You know, oh, and I think it's good to know where we've come from as a business because it. Well, I mean, and obviously it's very different for other people because I came through that particular way of India and travelers, so I was completely no technology. And I understand for other people probably they did have you know, internet. I mean, when I finally got BME, I remember it was just like, with my dial-up connection, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think um, talking about the industry, especially pre-internet, is fantastic because I, I think sometimes people have a difficult time being a problem solver and being able to, like, critically think through an issue. And um, it, maybe that'll help inspire people a little bit to maybe kind of step back from Google and Facebook and just try to work some stuff out. I think sometimes when you see people asking some of the questions that you're like, really, just do a little bit of research. I know it's easier to go onto a phone go, what does this, how does this do? But sometimes that stops you from thinking. So if something unexpected happens, you don't, you can think on your feet sometimes, which we all need to. And I think sometimes maybe that's what gets lost a little bit when people are too rigid in the way that they do things. Cause I think they're, they're almost afraid to experiment. Like there were plenty of things that I did in my career where it was like experimentation would be a kind way to put it. And it was really yeah. just like stumbling my way through it and hoping I did yeah. it correctly. No, totally. I think that's what we did. I mean, 
And also we had the clients who wanted us to do it, who were just like, yeah, mm-hmm. come on. I mean, it was very much yeah. like I was remember saying, you know, my body was a temple, but it was also an amusement park, <laughs> you know. And that was what I thought was, the, yeah, it was that thing with it a little bit more. It was that experimental. We had to, there wasn't the things to go on in the same way that we have now, you know. Now you shouldn't really need to do those things because you can yeah. find it. Right, right. Well, uh, that was a great talk. So I, I appreciate hey. your time and, you know, both of you taking the time for it. No, it was really happy to do. Thanks for asking me. Oh, I'm glad we could do it. Okay, uh, so welcome back. Um, I hope that you enjoyed um, the conversation that we got to share with Quentin. And I'm here with Ryan Willett. Um, so uh, whilst Ryan didn't host this episode, he still produced this episode. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the conversation and, and anything that you wanted to add that maybe we didn't touch on. Well, okay, so... To be honest, when I say I listened to the interview while you recorded it, it means I I sat in front of my laptop the entire time you recorded it, but I also had my phone in my hand the majority of the time. So, you know, there are parts that I might have to review the the episode to really like speak on it directly. But um, I I I just really like Quentin like in general. I I think the first time I met him in person was at my first BMX net conference or maybe my second BMX net conference. Um, and we just kind of like sat there. We just chatted for a good long while. We had talked a little bit on BME before that. Um, we kind of had like, you know, mutual friend through Sampa and, and some of the other like UK people. And um, he's just always been like a really warm person. And I've always meant to, to invite him on the show, but uh, I, I, I haven't seen him in person in years at, at this point. So um, it's, it's one of those things where like, yeah, I could reach out to all my, my friends and, you know, Piercer family folks on online, but sometimes you really just want to get like a, an in-person interview. And I haven't really like been in person with him in, in quite a while. So you did the, the interview um, with what was his name from Nirvana? I'm sorry. John. John from Nirvana. And I listened to that and that was, that was great to just like, I really like it when you can hear conversations outside of the APP bubble or like the, the Facebook piercer bubble, because it reminds you that like body piercing isn't owned by one specific kind of body piercer. You know, it's, it's universal, it's worldwide. And um, Quentin is like a, a perfect person to kind of speak to that because he's been piercing for so long. He's been uh, seeing body modification and body art in such like wide cross sections of the world that his perspective is really valuable. And with you two having that direct connection with him having worked on you before and, you know, you both being part of that same UK piercer community, I thought that there'd be nobody better to interview Quentin than, than you, especially when it came to the, the piercing side of it. I would still love to interview him about scarification someday though. Well, I think that, um, we have a habit, as I said to Quentin in the UK, of looking to America and the the, the whole gauntlet theology, if you like, as being this pyramid with gauntlet at the top and Jim Ward at the top of the modern body piercing movement and then all of this stuff that comes after. And it's not to say that that's not all 
wonderful, amazing information full of really interesting stories and characters and, and anecdotes and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it was Paul King who actually um, said, uh, I think at last year's UKPP conference that we should really be looking at contemporary body piercing and the modern history of body piercing more as like a tree with lots of branches and lots of little branches yeah. that come off of those branches. And it's really more like that. It's not just like gauntlet happened and then everything else. There was stuff happening all over. And we don't always do a brilliant job in the UK of like seeking out people who are on our doorstep or relatively close to us to talk to them about their experiences um, like they're not equally valuable or equally interesting which is a big mistake um, and it just takes one generation to go by without asking the previous one a question for all of that information to be lost because you know it's not getting written down it's not getting preserved so if we're not actually like making efforts to preserve it then in 10 years time or 20 years time it's like all those stories are just lost there's a lot that's already gone unfortunately the the way bme ended where it wasn't really like it wasn't really archived before it made like massive changes or before it was you know essentially gone um there's a, there was a whole generation that was the bridge between put your pen down there was a whole bridge generation of piercers between um like leather community tattoo parlor community into like the whole like goth cyber 90s thing there from that whole bridged community like before internet and after internet that generation is kind of gone already the, the people when like bme started when like um the app conference had started there were already piercers that had 10 or 20 years of experience who have long since retired moved on passed away whatever and when that like newer internet generation of piercers came into it, which like I would probably consider myself to be part of like, you know, um, a lot of those piercers were trying to like make their own legacy and push forward and all that stuff. And a lot of the information was gone if they weren't part of those, those earlier, like, you know, BME generations of, of piercers. So um, it is really important right now to talk to those piercers that are around that, like, 30 year experience mark because a lot of them are going to be retiring or moving on to other things in life. And maybe they, maybe they had apprentices, maybe they taught classes, maybe they wrote articles or went to conferences, but a lot of them didn't. And unless you go out and find them and talk to them and ask them like, what got you into it and how did you learn and who did you learn from and what, what's your experience? Unless you put that effort in now, it is just going to all be gone, all be gone. So it's really important to talk to people. Well, you've been piercing a lot longer than me, like a lot longer. Yeah, way keep mentioning that I'm, that I'm old. Way longer. So um, from my perspective in the, the timeline, I feel like a cross between a very young old piercer and a very old young piercer. Yeah. And one thing that I'm aware of is that is this, this huge kind of industry-wide a phenomenon that, that transcends like small locations and is something that's kind of prevalent everywhere is this fear of burnout and how to manage burnout and how to manage stress. And whatever you think about, um, you know, like the changing standards in the industry and the technical element of work in the industry, people who have been piercing for 25, 30 plus years 
they have obviously managed to stay on top of whatever that thing is, whatever it is that causes burnout, whatever it is that causes bad mental health. If you can find a happy piercer still piercing, who's been continuously working for over 20 years, over 25 years, 30 years, more than 30 years, then they definitely know something that you don't. And they're definitely doing something that you aren't. Otherwise they wouldn't be at that point without, you know, having just given up. So I think there's definitely something there that needs to be looked at. Well, you know, you know, when you have like the, the elders in your family, uh, grandparents, uncles, aunts, whatever, um, you talk to them and you're like, oh, what's your secret? And they always just say some like bananas thing where they're just like, I eat a pound of bacon every week. I drink a <laughs> bottle of whiskey. I rub you olive know. oil all over my body. Yeah. It's like, huh, does that actually work? So like when, when Quentin was saying, it really resonated with me when he just kind of said it, he said it really quick and casual, but he was like, oh yeah, you know, I used to do the whole six days a week and you know, you, that whole concept of you have to live and breathe and eat piercing. And, and now he's just trying to focus on, well, what do I need to pay my bills, have a good life and, and still just like enjoy my day to day and that he still enjoys going into work. For me, I, I, I'm, I'm at a bridge point in my, my life and my career, especially, you know, over what's happened in the last couple of weeks, uh, in the studio and whatever. Um, I'm kind of right on that line of what do I want the rest of my life and the rest of my career to be? And I, I haven't figured it out yet, but um, I, I, I do also remember when I was working six days a week uh, all the time and it was just like more, 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 give me more, whatever. And now it's like less, 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 please give me less. Like what's the, what's the lowest amount of like client time I can have, office time I can have, income I can have to still be able to like live my life and achieve my my goals personally and professionally. And um, just like you have to learn how to pierce and you have to learn all the things that go with it. Like I have to learn how to live a happy life because um, they don't always get like presented to you. So I'm trying to figure out that balance. It seems like Quentin's really figured out his balance and hopefully I can also get there one day without having to like climb a mountain in Nepal. <laughs> oh, um, that, that was in um, Guatemala. Oh, Guatemala. Okay. Well, how still, you, how could you forget such a detail? Well, still, I'm sure he's climbed mountains in Nepal also. Yeah. I'm, I'm certain that he has. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, th those piercers that are in that first, maybe five years of their career, where they think that it's like a, a, a badge of honor that you have to earn to like break your back and crush yourself and work 50 plus hours in a week. And you have to answer emails at two in the morning, or you have to always be on, or you always have to be grinding. It's like, okay, in your youth, maybe that's a positive. Maybe you're trying to work towards a goal or whatever, but later in life, that's kind of like the anti-goal. Um, I don't have a lot left to grind away and I don't want to be turned into dust. So I have to figure out how to dial it back, but still stay happy and still stay like, you know, viable financially. Look at you. Look how pretty you are. Baby. Look at your I'm, eyes. Look at your hair. I'm look a professional interview person. You're so beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, 
you want to say any other bullshit before we wrap it up? I'm going to, I'm going to try to come back and do some episodes soon, but like, um, it, it feels a little bit forced right now. You know, I had some things happen, uh, in, in my life. So, um, you know, dealing with some loss, some really significant loss and, um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to just put together a goddamn video for Patreon on inverted nipples. And it's like, normally a a video project would, once I have like the content recorded would take me about a week start to finish to like put together the narrated video. And I'm like three weeks into working on it and not done yet. And it's just like having a tough time pushing myself through the process, but I'm getting there. Well, people wait. And if they won't wait, then they won't wait. It's not going to make the video happen any faster. Yeah. I think it'll be a really good video though. I got, I got some really nice anatomical variations, just like dumb luck. I had that client last week for like a a really good example of an anatomical variation for, for inverted nipples. So I got that kind of as a sort of a bonus. And that made me sort of kind of restart the whole video again, because I think that that example was a little bit better than the one I had already had queued up. So I made like an ultra cut instead of like a 10 or a 15 minute video. It's like a half an hour long. There's only like 10 or 15 minutes of like the narration. And there's like all this bonus stuff with like tissue manipulation to really show it. Like I did like a long cut at the end and it's just for like five minutes. I'm just like struggling with this nipple, not in like a bad way, but just in the way that you have to kind of like wrangle an inverted nipple to the surface to be able to pierce it. Well, I'm I'm sure you like know what I'm talking about where it's just like rolling around all over the place. But um, I think it came out really good and I'm really happy with it as long as I can actually finish it. Well, you can't pour from an empty cup, baby. You know that. Yeah, you can. You just pour out the air. Um, I still have that interview with Adam Holmes that I recorded at UKAPP and completely forgot about. I'm going to review that and send it to him and just make sure that he's happy with it. But I I, want to get that published too. So, but you and I kind of planned on doing like an aftercare sort of a series, aftercare and troubleshooting. And I'd I'd really like to continue working on that. Well, no, when you're ready. Yeah. Okay. These are, these are not time sensitive issues. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm time sensitive. I'm sensitive. You're, you're everything sensitive. I am. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing a, a very nice interview with Quentin. You're welcome. Uh, you got anything else you want to say? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have nothing else to say. Um, I've used up my word allowance for the day. I have no more no more words. Okay. Well, um, thanks for listening, and uh, you know, keep coming back and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, beautiful Lola, where do people find you on the internet? People find me on uh, Instagram. Um, my work Instagram is Forest Piercing. And uh, my personal Instagram is lola.slider. And uh, my, my website is forestglasgow.com. Oh, yeah. one thing I forgot, pre-order yeah. right now. You can go to my website. If you're in North America, you can pre-order Lola's Dothra pin, yes. which is brilliant. Uh, and I, there's a very limited run of her like metallic foil Dothra stickers on my website for North America. So precisionbodyarts.com slash shop. And you can also pre-order 
the new Piercing Wizard Synthwave design, um, especially if you need um, 2X or larger, you can pre-order whatever size you might want. And uh, Lola will have a whole bunch of those Dothra pin badges available on her website for UK shipping within like the next four to six weeks, I think. Yes, Dothra, queen of the piercings. Yeah, it's Dothra. really brilliant. How many piercers do you think are going to look at that and be like, Dathra, what the hell does that mean? It's kind of a, it's, it, it's a, it's a double, it's a double pun sort of a thing. Or like half of one pun. It's either a double pun or like half of a pun, but it's definitely not just one pun. Right. It, well, it's the metric conversion. So that gets a little bit complicated. In millimeters, it's like 0.75 of a pun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stop talking now. Okay. Bye. Bye. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Piercing Wizard podcast. My name is Lola Slider. I'm a body piercer and I work at Forest Piercing in Glasgow, Scotland. I'm filling in this week for um, podcast host Ryan Willett. Um, I'm going to be interviewing um, UK piercer Quentin, who's the owner and operator of Kalima Emporium in Worthing um, in England. Um, Quentin is... Okay, I fucked that up. Can I try again? Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Piercing Wizard podcast. Uh, my name is Lola Slider, and this week I'm filling in for host Ryan Willett. No, nope. I'm going to start. What? Put your pen down. Don't go down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay, baby. You're so cute. You're so cute and so fidgety. <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. All right, I'm turning my shit off and you start whenever you want, okay, baby? Can you hear my pen? <laughs> All right, I go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't make me separate you two. Very serious. And scene. Okay. Okay, I'm ready this time. It was my intro okay? Yeah, it was great. So that was the least enthusiastic. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, you want to record an outro? Okay. Okay. Well, Hi. that sure was a great interview, Lola. But first, I want to talk about what you can save at Geico.com. Save 15% or more on your car insurance by visiting Geico. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm here. You want me to do the thing? What thing? The outro thing. Yeah, go. <laughs>